This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Truth be told, I was a little nervous to interview William as I worried my boundless admiration for him might get the better of me. Turns out I needn't have worried as his urbane, cultured and kind manner quickly put me at ease and made this one of my all-time favourite Five of My Life conversations. So, William, welcome to Five of My Life. Thank you very much. Now, I have to start with a confession, which is, and I don't want to embarrass you, but the poetry pharmacy is one of my most treasured possessions. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. I refer to that book more than any other book I have ever owned, and I find it unfailingly wise and helpful. So you are a dead set legend. Uh, And and tell us a little bit about its reception. Uh, Why was it so successful? It's not just me that was bowled over. I think that, uh, and I've spent most of my adult life trying to bring poetry out of poetry corner, as I call it, at the sort of back of a bookshop. And I think that fundamentally, we love poetry and we reach out for it in times of need, but we don't know where to look. When we're young, usually probably going through adolescence, our poetry experience at school rather puts us off. And that's because of the the sort of ciphers to poetry in our life, the English teachers, booksellers, librarians, and so on, are often pretty intimidated by poetry themselves. So a natural affinity that we have with poetry when we're children, because we love rhyme and learning to read and all those kinds of things, it's just taken away from us. So I think at heart we need and we love poetry, but we're really limited in knowing where to start. And so what the pharmacy is constructed to do is, is to sort of help you find the right poetry for the right mood at the right time in your life. So I was on a, a London tube train in 1987. I had a horrible job. I was miserable, uh, miserable in every way, really. And I was commuting in the morning, uh, still smoking on the tube. So it was wet. People were crammed in the northern line. Uh, and I looked up and there was a tube card that I thought was an advert and I didn't know what it was advertising. Uh, and it was just a paragraph. And it said, when I am sad and weary, when I think all hope has gone, when I walk along High Hoban, I think of you with nothing on. And <laughs> Adrian Mitchell at his best. Yes, I love it. <laughs> Celia, Celia. That's right. It changed my life. It, it literally, I, it, it knocked me on the floor. I thought I immediately was sort of happy and thoughtful and thought about my girlfriend at the time and blah, blah, blah. And, and then I sought out, I didn't understand why it was there. I thought it was an ad. And then I found out it was, it was Judith Chernek's poems on the underground. And I went off and bought a book, Poems on the Underground, and then my yeah. mate Giles gave me your book for my birthday, and I'm not really a poetry person, uh, and I went, well, I'm going to read this if it's got my favourite poem in it. <laughs> and I opened it up, and there it was. You prescribed it for glumness. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Well, I'm so pleased you referred to that. 
it's one of those lovely little poems that you can know off by heart because it's so short, but it never fails to bring a smile to my face and to cheer me up in tricky moments. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we're not going to start uh, with poetry at Five in My Life. We always start with uh, your film. And you have chosen a film that's going to take us back to the 1950s. Uh, you've chosen the uh, the last role that Grace Kelly played before she became Princess of Monaco. Really? Uh, yes. Yeah. Into, oh, there yeah. you go. That, that's what we do on Five of My Life. You learn these, <laughs> these jewels. <laughs> uh, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Grace Kelly. What a cast. Uh, 1956, High Society. Tell us about that, William. Why have you chosen that? Uh, well, rather like the Celia Celia poem, it makes me really happy watching that film. And quite often in life, when it's winter time and I'm sitting with my family and we're talking about what we want to watch, and yes, it, there's yet another sort of stressful, terrifying thriller or whatever, I always say to them, I like a nice, warm, gentle comedy. And High Society is just my favourite of the lot. It's not just the cast, but it's mainly that. The fact that you've got Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, and you didn't mention Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong. Police. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and his band, who, who you know, who sort of um, punctuate the film with their contributions. It's just a joy. And it's all filmed or set in some big Long Island or East Coast grand house. And uh, it's, it's done with such style. It's, it's what American cinema is, is best at. And I've watched it. I watched it as a child and I watched it with my children many times. So that brings happy memories too. And, and so are you a, uh, a sort of a rom-com uh, fan generally or is it just this particular one? I think that one in particular, but um, being a, a child that grew up in the 60s, those were the kinds of films that were on our telly and I think those were the kinds of films I really adored and big musicals big, colourful, um, imaginative. Plus, I loved Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, um, The Road to Films, those kinds of things. Things, I suppose, when you're little that make your parents laugh and you get to watch with them. Yeah, absolutely. Now, my wife has sworn me to ask you this question because I've been reading about you. I know more about you than I than I wish I did, really. Um, but <laughs> oh uh, we're talking about films, and she said she won't let me back in the house tonight if I don't ask you this question. Is one of the things that pops up, if I'm sure you know this, if you do lots of Google researching on you, is you are the bloke that Notting Hill is based on? Just tell me that's not true and I can move on. Or if it is true, I'm going to say, did the dinner party happen? The dinner party happened. I think we can move on after that, yes. <laughs> that, that's all I need to say. That's fantastic. <laughs> okay, so we'll move on and we're going to go from the 50s to the 40s. And we're changing the pace a little bit because uh, we're going from a romantic musical comedy to uh, a work that one of the people I researched said was one of the finest achievements of Western civilization. It's T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets, published in 1943. Uh, tell us about that. Well, I think it's the most important bit of poetry written in the 20th century. I've always been struck by it. I started reading it first um, as a young man, and couldn't make head or tail of it. So and to begin with, you think, what on earth is he going on about? Great art is layered, and great art you don't get necessarily the first time you encounter it. A good example would be when I was young and I used to save up for records, you'd buy the album because you'd heard the first two tracks on the radio um, that were in, you know, in the charts, and then... You, 
on the back of side two would be this long and rather weird thing. And you think, what's that? But by the time you'd listen to that album over and over and over again, because we had more time in our days in the 70s, um, uh, that, that, that track became your favourite. And the, the two rather saccharine top of the pops tracks you didn't want to listen to any longer. That's my analogy in a way for the four quartets, that it's become one of my life's challenges in a way um, to get to the bottom of it or to get as much to the bottom of it as you as I can. I was really intrigued that my wife, who's a filmmaker, was filming some nuns in a Carmelite nunnery, which is a silent order. And every day they would go down to a room to meditate and they meditated on the four quartets. And that reassured me, it made me understand or reassured my choice about why this piece of poetry matters so much to me. Apart from the many readings I've had of it and the extraordinary complexity and depth and so forth that comes from it, I lost my mother a couple of years ago and she was, you know, in her 90s. And one of the hardest things about sorting my life out or her life out after she was gone was dismantling her book collection because her book collection, she was a serious reader and quite an intellectual in a way. And her book collection represented her in, and the whole idea of just simply boxing it up and sending the books around to a secondhand bookshop just seemed very challenging for me. And as I was standing there feeling pretty sad, one very slim volume in the enormous bookshelf stuck out of me and I pulled it out and there was the four quartets. And I spent the next couple of months grieving and made me realise how much I missed her and how much I wanted almost in public to wear the black armband that people used to do in Victorian times because I really wasn't up for, for chat. And, you know, if anyone was going to say to me, how are you? I want to say, well, either my mother's died and that would lead to complex conversations that they may not want to have. Or I want to say, I'm fine, how are you? And I'm not. So I didn't want to go there either. So I kind of disappeared a bit and, and I learned half of the four quartets. I got 700 lines in, um, something like that. And to learn a poem that long and that complex really requires you to inhabit it every day just to keep it in your mind. In so doing, I then started to really get the hang of the poem and what was going on. And I was absolutely hooked. What's really intriguing to me about the four quartets in a, in, in a way is, is the, uh, even in modern times, in a world where poetry is sent out by social media in tiny little clips, you get these little two-liners or four-liners in, in the poem that you sit and go, oh my God, that's gripping. There's a wonderful piece about, as he, he's become an old man and he's trying to say, you know, in, in a way, as an old man, we're supposed to be wise and all that. And he says, don't, do not tell me about the wisdom of old men, but of their folly and their fear of fear and of frenzy and possession and belonging to another or to others or to God. The only wisdom we can hope to attain is humility. Humility is endless. It's just so wonderful hearing you talk. Uh, just fantastic hearing you talk with such passion and love for this piece of work. And because I found it, so impenetrable. I went off and I, uh, I read a book and I attended a YouTube lecture by a bloke called Professor Thomas Howard. I don't know if you know him. He wrote Dove Descending. But I started to understand bits of it. 
and and, and yeah. just incredible. And there's one quote that I'd love to ask you about, uh, which is the strained, time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction, filled with fancies and empty of meaning. Yeah, yeah. And you, as a young man, you were a guerrilla. Uh, graffiti artist, because you used to post a poem up. Could you tell us about that, please? I started a thing called National Poetry Day nearly 30 years ago. And being young and fairly naive, I I, I got a grant from the Arts Council to do it. And I got £5,000, which in those days seemed to me to be a staggering sum of money. But I had to cover the nation. And I was slightly thinking, how am I going to do that with £5,000? A friend of mine said, well, fly posting, of course, uh, which is something which is illegal and not what you're supposed to be doing with taxpayers' money. But anyway, I got one or two really unsettling poems um, onto, I want to say unsettling, but poems to make you think rather like Celia Celia did on the underground with you. And I realised that there are certain places in London where I live that actually you get stuck. You know, there are certain traffic lights or points where you just can't escape. And so I got poems fly posted at double decker level around London in places where I knew you get stuck. It certainly had a real impact. I think somebody wrote about it in the press and um, I just seemed a lovely way of doing things. Would you mind reading the poem to us? This is called The Price by Stuart Henson. Sometimes it catches when the fumes rise up among the throbbing lights of cars, or as you look away to dodge eye contact with your own reflection in the carriage glass, or in a waiting room, a face reminds you that the colour supplements have lied, and some have pleasure, and some pay the price. Then all the small securities you built about your house, your desk, your calendar, are blown like straws, and momentarily, as if a scent of ivy or the earth had opened up a childhood door, you pause to take the measure of what might have been against the kind of life you settled for. Cue hundreds of depressed commuters feeling terrible about themselves. <laughs> You're a wicked man. I have to ask you before we move on to the next uh, choice, William, it is uh, T.S. Eliot uh, was a man of faith. What is your religious journey? Um, yes. Now, well, he was a man of faith, but it's interesting that if you look at uh, or read the four quartets, how many faiths enter the poem. So there's a lot of references to a middle way, to a kind of Buddhist perspective. There's a whole passage about Hindu life and many, many references to Catholicism or Christianity. Why do we call this Friday good? You know, um, which is a question I always used to think as a child too, I have to say. I think that there's something rather remarkable about the very end of the poem, and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And actually the last 30 or so lines I've read at people's weddings, because it's almost like the business of getting married. Quick now, here, now, and always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. 
Isn't that a beautiful description of the marriage vows in a way? So I share with him a kind of pantheism in, in the sense of I'm intrigued by the spiritual world, the greater ordering of things. I love what organized religion has done for mankind's architectural and creative abilities. I hate almost everything that the institution stands for in the sense of its repression, its ability to fight other faiths and religions, to be the cause of wars, to be um, an opportunity for men to abuse children or women or exclude women. So almost all the kind of organizational side, uh, the functional side of it, I, I'm, I, I struggle with, but I still would say that I have a deep faith. And in my work, particularly my work in conflict mediation in the Middle East, I've worked um, with a lot of deeply religious communities, whether they be Muslim, Christian or Jewish. And, um, you know, when you're doing that, it, 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 there's nothing but admiration for the power of faith and what it can do to look after the humanity around you. Would you mind talking to your, your mediation work? I was going to come on to that later, but I, I'd love you to expand on that now. I started a charity with one of the most remarkable people I've ever met, uh, an Irish former priest called Oliver McTurnan, who is uh, also a long-term broadcaster for the BBC. And the essence of forward thinking's work is really to do conflict mediation between or on behalf of communities or nations who don't engage with each other or can't engage with, with each other for one reason or another. In the end, all conflict can only end with conversation. But sometimes people are so conflicted for one reason or another that they can't even converse with each other. So I started forward thinking in 2006 with Oliver, and we've been working very much on the front line in places like Gaza and uh, countries like the Saudis and the Turks and the Iranians, who, you know, who are who struggle to communicate with each other, and we're supported by governments, the sort of governments that you'd expect to support these kinds of things, like the Finns and the Swedes and um, the Danes and so forth, and many other European countries. And uh, we don't really talk very much about our work. We try and keep below the radar, but we just get on with um, trying to help people and try and stop uh, stop people shooting at each other. Really. And how do you start if, you, if you're, I mean, I spent some time in, in Israel as a younger man on a kibbutz and gosh, Golan Heights and the, you know, bombs whizzing overhead is how do you get two parties to talk to each other if they're lobbing bombs at each other? Where do you start? I've always said that um, the Woody Allen thesis that 90% of success is showing up is a good, is a good start. And Secondly, to be utterly transparent. Thirdly, to be consistent. And if you show up in a war zone and be consistent and st say the same thing and be transparent, that's a good start. Luckily, I, I, I started this work with a man who had been my priest. He'd married, married my wife and I and baptized my children in the local Catholic church. And he'd left the priesthood after 30 years to do this work. And um, that allowed us to engage with the religiously, religiously inspired communities on both sides of the divide, because he was a man of God. And, I, and you know, uh, my relationship with him was initially spiritual. And that's deeply respected in every religious community you, you come across. That's where you begin. 
Back to the quote that you uh, read out from Eliot, which was, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Is, is Are you an optimist, having done years of that work? Yes. Yes, I am an optimist. Um, uh, I think you have to be to do that kind of work, to be honest. My father said something to me very, very helpful when I was young. And uh, he was a refugee, and uh, his sense of otherness, I think, infected all of us, both good and bad. Um, but he said to me, you know, there are two tribes in this world. Um, and, you know, what, what, one is the tribe, tribe of people who find life on the whole, you know, quite balanced and easy to bump along in. And the other tribe, another tribe called witnesses, or I call them witnesses. And being a witnesser is sometimes being a bit like being an eagle, a bit, you know, lonely on a crag, but not in the pejorative sense of looking down on the world, but you'll hurl yourself into things and just as quickly be gone. And you'll meet other wonderful witnesses and have extraordinary friendships and love affairs and all those kinds of things. But you'll realize that the difficulty of being a witness is that you experience the lowest of the low, but the joy of it is you experience the highest of the high. And one day you'll realize you are blessed. And that helped me through very difficult years in boarding schools and so forth, where I felt small and lonely and, um, you know, um, and, and also other. I didn't find it that easy to be part of the gang um, who just buzzed along in life and got on with it and had a laugh. Uh, that just isn't who I am. Oh, my word. I can't thank you enough for putting me on to your track, Surfing by Ernest Wrangling. It's a sort of a... I mean, I hadn't heard of him. I do apologise. But it's a jazz reggae sort of combo. It's, he, he's like the founder of Scar. Uh, and, and I've had it on... Uh, just my kids are going driven mad because I'm just playing it. It's so cruisy. Could you tell us about the track and why you chose it? Isn't it lovely? It just became a theme in life for me. And uh, I quite like music to do things to and music to get me going. And that would be how I'd start the day. It's um, an elegant, as you say, fusion of jazz and reggae and ska. It's just where they, they all come together. And um, Ernest and his guitar. It, it, I, can't, I can't really, without us all listening to it, I can't <laughs> say more than that, except it's a kind of jaunty theme uh, in a mellow way that you could imagine strolling down the street to, getting out of bed to, opening the curtains and going, off we go. And I never tire of that track. And my children never tire of the track. And they should do by now. <laughs> it's interesting. So, so the first time I was listening to it, it, it's rare for a song to do this to me. So I didn't know anything about it. I, I, I you know, obviously tracked it down and, and put it on. And unlike almost any other song because i thought it was a song uh where i go you know come on mate get on with it start your singing i was hoping there wasn't going to be any and yes. th and there isn't which yeah. fabulously i'm just no. thinking this is so good i hope there's not gonna be some idiotic verse or chorus to, to ruin it and it just yeah a beautiful piece funny enough i did um uh, a bbc program over here called private passions about your favorite music and the guy who was interviewing me Michael Barclay said, do you know, 
there's, there, for a man who loves words and poetry, not one of your pieces of music have any lyrics. <laughs> I, I hadn't thought of that. It hadn't occurred to me. But I, I genuinely prefer music on its own and words on their own. God, a fascinating uh, insight. And we're going to go from Jamaica to England because your place that you have chosen on Five in My Life is Thorpe Ness on the Suffolk coastline. Uh, could you describe it? Because, uh, gosh, I, I, again, all these things I'm learning, it, it's got a pretty remarkable history. Uh, and tell us why you chose it. It's one of those very, very strange places that, that doesn't happen often in Britain. It, it, it's a little village designed and conceived by... J.M. Barry, as in the author of Peter Pan, and his friend, who was a Scottish aristocrat called Ogilvy, who owned the land. And they decided to build a children's paradise. And the children's paradise, as they, as, as, as they called it, was really a place for, I think in those days, people in the British Empire, colonial types, to return home to visit their children, who they'd sent to boarding school at the age of five, and who were released for the summer holidays. And it was a little kind of wooden hotel called the Country Club, and with it about 40 weatherboarded or or mock Tudor houses, and built around a dozen tennis courts, a golf course, and the first ever theme park, I reckon, because they flooded a marshy area and turned it into a, a giant lake, 60 acres, which is, you know, quite big for a lake, and planted up lots of little islands on the lake uh, and built little buildings on them. And the buildings are called Wendy's House or Peter Pan's Property or the Pirate's Castle. And as a little boy, I used to go out there every day in my summer holidays because we'd go there for our holidays because my mother had gone for her holidays in the 1920s and we grew up in rural Essex, which uh, is next to Suffolk, and that was the nearest place to the sea. And it really was a paradise. And when my father died, when I was, you know, relatively young in my late 20s, my mother, who lived in those days in, in, in the country under in London with him, said, that's it, I'm selling up, I'm moving to Thorpness. I've just found it my spiritual home ever, ever since, really. Um, it's not to everyone's taste. It's on the North Sea, which for those of, of you um, who've been there will know there's not a beautiful blue and there's no barrier reef there's nothing but shingle and um uh, somewhere in the distance holland and it can be the northeasterly siberian coming your way can be pretty challenging but it's my spiritual home i can't i can't explain it more than that east anglia is very flat sometimes all you can see above the trees is a, is a, is a church spire but it's where where my happy place was when i was little and has become my happy place ever since. And so that is your your like main residence. You you live in Thorpness. No, I live in London, to be honest. But uh, I have a, sh- a, a literally a shack on the beach with a corrug- it's a corrugated roof, and uh, uh, enough room to squeeze my wife and dog and three children in. And for lockdown, which was you know best part of a year here, uh, we spent it there. So now. It's become the children's spiritual home as well, because instead of just being a holiday home, uh, you know, they spent a whole year there. I love it. I also love, I've got to pick you up on the descriptions of an English winter, because, uh, you know, being fortunate enough to live, uh, you know, down here with the beautiful weather that we have, uh, it, it reminded me, uh, have you heard of a poet called, and he's passed away, poor bloke, but Hovis Presley? No, I haven't. 
I am so glad to be able to recite a poem oh, good. to a poetry legend like yourself that you haven't heard of. But when you are shivering in Thorpness, let's see if you can remember this one. So this is Hovis Presley. I just, I mean, it, this had almost as big an impact to me as the Celia Silly one did. But it's the winter's cold, the blanket's hot, the wind's getting up, but I am not. Now is the winter of my quite content. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Right, we are going to move to your fifth choice on Five of My Life, which is, and, and, and forgive me if I don't pronounce this correctly, the Akima Stone Buddha Head. A Khmer. Khmer. Khmer, sorry. Khmer Stone Buddha Head. So the Khmers were the people who built Angkor Wat. In the 9th to 13th century in Cambodia. That's the... Yes, yes. And even actually, in a way, the pre-Khmers who were there before started building it, um, I think probably in the sort of 6th or 7th. Angkor Wat was the biggest city in the world in that period. It had over a million people living there. And you're lucky where you are in the world because it's not that far away from Australia and a place that many Australians visit. It's an enormous city filled with temples and waterways. And you only have to look at the friezes or the stone friezes of the, the life that they were leading there to see that there was something rather remarkable and extraordinary happening. And uh, I'm obsessed by ancient civilizations. I, I've spent my life traveling and exploring ruins because they intrigue me. And, uh, uh, one day I was in the basement of a auction house in London that was closing down and they were having a sale of their last, their last items. And there was this little head, um, um, a Khmer head. And it's uh, a treasured possession, not just for it, but the symbolism of what it means to me. I was very lucky when I started my publishing business um, as quite a young man, I was 26. The deal I had with my business partner was that I would get to travel for three months a year and he would mind the shop. And so for 15 years, I, 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 I traveled for three months exploring ruins and going to odd places and hard to reach places. And um, it's been in a way the, the most rewarding part of my life. So that, that, that head and my bizarre collection of bits and pieces that, that, that surround me at home uh, are my, collection of memories from these extraordinary travels. It makes me want to ask, you've prescribed thousands of poems to thousands of people in your work, and you have done all that travel. And one of the things that you said, a, a lovely quote, is that there's a basic spiritual sameness that runs throughout humanity. And I, I want to ask is, when I read that quote, I, I was assuming that you were talking about all the different people who come to you with ailments and you prescribe them a poem. But do you think that sameness doesn't just go across different types of people that you've met, but throughout the ages? We're, we're all sort of bound up in an inescapable blanket of mutuality. Yes. And, yeah. you know, basically it's the same, whether you're a 9th century Cambodian or a 21st century Thorpe Nest dweller. It's all been said, done, thought, felt before. Not much is new, really. I think the most intriguing story I ever heard which um, connects it actually, was, was a, a man who'd been in the Dalai Lama's inner circle. And I heard him speak in the 1980s in Westminster Hall in London, at a time where people from that uh, background weren't 
weren't quite as celebrated as they are today. And he was talking to a rather sort of cynical audience of men in suits. And um, it got to question time. And one, one of the one of the Englishmen put his arms up and hand up and said, could you please tell me what's the essential difference between your world and ours in simple terms? And a few other people went, here, here. And I thought, oh, gosh, he's, you know, he's going to be up against it. And he said, I, I think the essential difference between my world and yours is threefold. He said, you... You, you in, in the West have been, in the Judeo-Christian-Islamic tradition, have been brought up with the principle of, of original sin. And it governs your psyche, your thinking, your art, your culture, and your day-to-day -day existence. He said, I was brought up in a world of original blessing. He said, think what a difference that would make. He said, secondly, you in the West have kind of given up on God, and you've replaced God with technology. And you think in the West you have the most sophisticated technology that humanity has ever encountered. He said, I'll tell you something you won't believe, but I promise you it's true. He said, in Tibet, we have a technology equally as sophisticated as yours. Only ours is the technology of the inner world and yours is of the outer world. He said, the third most important difference is that I grew up in Lhasa and uh, a strange American evangelist came to try and convert us to Christianity. And he translated the Lord's Prayer into Tibetan rather badly. And it read, our daddy that lives in the sky, give us today our daily biscuit. And he said, not surprisingly, it didn't really catch on here. And the Dalai Lama decided that um, it was very important if we were to spread the word and get people to understand about our culture and where we come from, that we go to these different countries and really uh, learn the language and the culture. So I've grown up in Britain, really, and I went to Cambridge. And uh, after I left Cambridge, I said to the Dalai Lama, what should I do with the rest of my time here? And he said, you must work in hospices. And I've worked in hospices for the last 20 years of my life. And he said, there I've understand the most crucial difference between my world and yours. He said, you only understand the importance of living when you know you're going to die. And you could have heard a pin drop and the cynicism in the audience melted away. And we trooped out really thoughtfully. I love the, uh, the first point that the Dalai Lama made there. My friend Chrissy has got a, a wonderful phrase from, from, I forget which master, but it's, you are good, be good, which is, goes to the, I mean, you, you were born good. I mean, you know, when we're a babe in swaddling clothes, we're, you know, essentially nice people with a little bit of God in all of us. And, you know, you haven't got to change yourself, just be good because you are good. Don't, you know, it's not, don't stop apologizing for the apple and the serpent. Well, think of the great Muhammad Ali, who perhaps not known as a poet, but obviously, you know, great, very talented with words. And the thing he wrote, me, we, says it all. Reading about you, I, I found uh, I found it sort of mildly intimidating. Um, and uh, I, I sent, a, sent an email to my son, jokingly saying, if you want to feel bad about yourself, read this and it was my notes on you and you're, you're very accomplished throughout a whole host of different fields with charities for the homeless organizations for peace in the middle east uh, i mean you've written books on poetry you've written a book on bloody golf i mean it sort of goes on and on and on uh, it's very uh, impressive and so the question i wanted to ask if you don't mind is your view and experience of of failure in some ways I, I was raised with an anxious psyche, either genetically or uh, and by being sent to boarding school and by being the child of a refugee, all those kinds of things. Um, 
My dad said to me when I was 11, heaven knows we get dependent enough on people, but never ever get dependent on this country because one day you might have to leave it. So I've had a permanent sense, slight unease of otherness, of uh, feeling um, I've got to get on with things, all that kind of stuff. And in some ways, however much I've ever been lucky enough to do, to achieve or whatever, uh, it's a, a clean slate every morning, uh, as though none of that's ever happened. I think that makes for a productive life, but not necessarily an easy life. Some of my closest friends and people I admire the most are actually people who wake up in the morning without any of this sturm und drang and can just appreciate and enjoy the day and not have a mind full of shoulds and oughts and musts. So it's a blessing and a curse. This has been, uh, for me, an absolute privilege uh, chatting to you. I, I just find it fascinating. I, I, and the, the last question um, uh, we ask all of our guests on Five of My Life is who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next and why? I have to say, I've got a bit of a thing about Barack Obama. I'd, I'd be pretty keen to hear what he has to say. I think he's been one person that we could all looked up, look up to and, uh, and he hasn't let us down. Wonderful. Well, we'll get on the blower to Barack. And William, thank you so much for sharing your five on five, my life. That, that's just one of the most uh, enjoyable and thought-provoking conversations we've had on the show to date. So uh, God bless and love and success in your future, mate. And uh, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 